1: Let's go places. Third Squad is a documentary podcast about war. Every episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. All right, so you're on tape. Are these not the are over. Wonderful. All right, so first, uh, what's your full name? Michael Joseph Dutcher. Sometimes you meet people, and without knowing exactly why, you just have this sense that they'll be a part of your life for a long time maybe forever. I felt that way about Michael Dutcher when I met him at patrol base fires in 2011. How old are you? 22. And what's your hometown?
2: Asheville, Asheville, North 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 Carolina.
1: Michael Joseph Dutcher, Asheville, North Carolina. That name and that lazy drawl have been playing on a loop in my head for a decade illustrated by a grainy black-and-white portrait of a tired young Marine with dorky square frame glasses and a cardboard tray of slop on his lap. The first thing is, why did you join the Marine Corps? I honestly have no idea anymore. By the time I asked Dutcher that question, I didn't really know why I was doing what I was doing anymore either. It was my third fighting season in Afghanistan as a journalist, and I had my own year-long combat tour in Iraq under my belt, too. I'd seen a lot of death and a lot of heartbreak. None of it seemed to be making anything better for anyone. And risking my life to write about it and photograph it had started to seem as reckless and as pointless as the war itself. I was looking for a way out, and when Dutcher got killed, I found it. His death shook me into believing that I could walk away, So I did, but I never felt good about it, and I never forgot about Dutcher. I'm Elliot Woods. This is Third Squad, episode 12, The End of the Road. I thought about Dutcher's family a lot in the years after he died. At some point, I put the recording of our interview on a disc along with the photos I took of him in Sangin and mailed it to his mother, Teresa. About a month later, I got a note back from Teresa's sister-in-law, Paula. She said that if I ever wanted to talk, Teresa would be willing. She wrote down a phone number and an address. And after all this time, I'm finally here. Very end of
2: the dead end road.
1: For that one. Wow, what a view. See the mountains over there? The Tommy and I park in front of a one-story brick house with a wide porch framed by heavy columns. There's a steep drop-off on one side which plunges down into one of those suburban forests that must have been like an infinite wilderness to Michael and his twin brother Timothy when they were kids. And there's an old above-ground pool on the other side of the house which must have been filled with laughter all summer long when the boys were little. All right. Here, Here, we go. Here we are. I can't remember ever being more nervous than I am at this particular moment, walking up these front steps that Dutcher must have climbed a thousand times. I'm preparing to ask his mother to relive the worst moment of her life, and I can barely imagine how nervous she must be. Good morning. Instead of Teresa, we're greeted by an older man with a grizzled goatee who's sitting out in the sun reading a book. I'm Elliot, by the way. I'm Ron, Teresa's husband. Call. Nice to meet Hi, you. Ron, you Ron Bradley and Teresa met and married a few years ago. Michael Dutcher never met Ron, but he lives <laughs> here now, and he opens the door for us. Come right on in. Good morning. Teresa appears at the kitchen door and makes her way over to us. How are
3: you? All right, how are you? Mr. Hanging in there. Hanging in there. So I'm Elliot.
1: Teresa's small, with freckles and piercing blue eyes. Michael had brown eyes, but he had Teresa's broad cheekbones, and he had her gentle Appalachian drawl. I can hear the weariness in Teresa's voice, and I know she's not exactly excited that I'm here. Is this the house that Michael and Timothy grew up in?
3: It is. Wow, were
1: they babies here?
3: Yeah, we moved here when they were five years old. This is my mom and dad's house. Wow. Wow.
1: The house is dark inside, with hardwood floors and a long hallway stretching toward the kitchen, where a big picture window looks out on the trees. There's a sitting area near the front door with chairs, a couch, and a fireplace. Family photos line the mantle. I notice there isn't one of Michael and his Marine Corps dress blues, but there is a pair of framed pictures of Michael and his twin brother Timothy, dressed in tuxedos for senior prom. Except for Michael's rounder face and cleft chin, the boys look almost identical. Okay, so would this be your most comfortable place to sit, or here, or oh, where do you think you want to be? On the couch, is fine. Okay. Yeah. We sit down by the fireplace to talk. At long last. We made it. I reassure Teresa that she's in control, and I'm here to listen, just like I've done with all the 3rd Squad Marines. I tell her we don't have to talk about anything she doesn't want to talk about, and we can stop whenever she wants to. That's when an old-fashioned clock chimes above the mantle. Teresa tells me the clock goes off every 15 minutes. Actually, this is great because I have a tendency to forget about time entirely, and so this will really keep me on my toes.
3: It will. We start
1: by talking about Teresa's family's deep roots in this area.
3: Oh, I grew up in West Asheville. My dad was an engineer for Southern Railway. I was in this house all the way through middle school and high school.
1: These days, West Asheville is known for its breweries and the arts district nestled between the railroad tracks and the French Broad River. But Teresa says it was a struggling working class neighborhood when she was growing up nicknamed Worst Asheville by kids from wealthier parts of town and known for the shuttered businesses on Haywood Road and the high crime rate. Teresa has lived her entire life here. It's where she got her first job as a teaching assistant, which led to a career teaching disabled children. And it's where she met and married a man named David Dutcher.
3: He actually lived in the neighborhood. So I had known him off and on for years, and we just were close friends.
1: And then you and David moved back into this house?
3: We did. My dad got very sick. Um, He had emphysema, so we had to put him in a nursing home. So we moved back in this house, and my mother lived with us.
1: It was in the spring of 1988 that Teresa found out she was pregnant, and it was an adventure right from the start. So what did you think when you found out that you were going to
3: have twins? almost had a heart attack and come to find out that twins ran on both sides of the family. But, um, yeah, it was a big shock.
1: The twins were born on a Monday, November 21st, 1988.
3: They were actually a month early. Michael was three pounds, 15 ounces. And Timothy was four pounds, 10 ounces. Yep. That's tiny. They were, they were little bitty things. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Michael and Timothy grew from little bitty things into a real handful.
3: Oh gosh, it was a mess. (laughs) They fought all the time. Argued, didn't get along, it was a mess. One minute they were trying to kill each other, and the next minute they were hanging out reading books together.
1: So two was company.
3: Two was company. They would do the craziest things. They would take the um, trampoline and slide it beside the pool And jump off the trampoline into the pool. They were boys.
1: That sounds like a lot of fun.
3: Yeah. Michael was really easy to get along with. Super laid back. Nothing bothered him. Timothy, oh gosh, he'd argue with a brick wall.
1: Tell me about their friendship. Tell me about their bond as brothers and how you saw that bond take shape over the years.
3: Oh, they would do everything together. But for some reason, they would get into an argument. God only knows what. And then there'd be a fight breakout.
1: Did they actually wrestle and fight physically? or did? Yes.
3: They, they would actually get into fights. I'd have to break it up. Yeah, but the next thing I know, they'd be back playing again. They had bump beds in their bedroom. And it would be funny because even though we had bump beds, you would go in there and um, they'd be sleeping together. Really? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: When they were little? Yeah. That's pretty cute.
3: Yeah. Yeah, they always slept together for some reason.
1: By the time the boys got to high school, they'd found ways to differentiate themselves. Timothy played upright bass in the strings program, and Michael played trumpet in the marching band. They spent time alone with different friend groups. But they were on the wrestling team together. And like Jeffrey Lopez up in New Jersey, they both joined junior ROTC. Tell people who don't know, what is ROTC in high school?
3: You learn how to drill, you learn how to march, you learn how to flip the guns, and basically it's like you're in boot camp.
1: You learn all the military ranks.
3: Learn all the history, learn all the background. They had a study hall, they went to mud runs, Six Flags, I mean, it was just like a little community. And the boys absolutely fell in love with ROTC they would spend every waking minute there.
1: JROTC is partially funded by the Department of Defense, with the official objective of instilling leadership skills and civic values like honor and integrity in young people. The instructors are legally barred from recruiting, but it's still a pipeline into the military for many of the more than 500,000 teens across the country who are enrolled at any given time.
3: I wanted Timothy to go to ROTC because Timothy was a handful. So I figured I'd be really good for Timothy. And I don't know why Michael just decided he wanted to join ROTC. But he originally wanted to be an architect.
1: Did either your family or David's family have a military background?
3: Not really. I mean, my dad was in the war, the Korean War, and David's dad was in the military. But the boys never had any interest in it whatsoever. Then all of a sudden in high school, and I don't know if it was so much joining the military, as it was, they just liked being part of that community.
1: So what did you think about their participation in ROTC?
3: I guess, if I had to admit it, I was very naive. I had no idea that that would lead to a military career. I just thought it was like band or strings, something else. It was just an extracurricular activity.
1: So when they joined ROTC, the war in Iraq was just starting. Right. What do you remember about that time period? What do you remember about watching these wars start and what you were thinking at the time?
3: I remember um, my sister-in-law, we discussed several times, if there's a draft, we're moving to Canada. Our boys aren't going to go in the military. So, honestly, I didn't pay any attention because during that time period, I was so focused on David.
1: The boy's father, David, was ill for much of their childhood. When he was feeling well, the family would go on camping trips in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and the boys would help David work on his old Camaro. That might be where Michael picked up the knack for fixing things that he was famous for in 3rd Squad. But by the time the boys hit their teenage years, their dad's health was deteriorating rapidly.
3: David was sick for a long time. He had a mild stroke, and it slowly developed to congestive heart failure. That was back when the boys were in elementary school. So he'd been sick for quite a while. It just kind of slowly progressed and got worse and worse.
1: David died in 2005, when Michael and Timothy were sophomores in high school.
3: He died from congestive heart failure with venous stasis ulcers. Basically, he died from the inside out.
1: And I imagine that was a pretty difficult time for you and the boys. Yeah.
3: It was. It was a struggle.
1: What effect do you think that had on Michael and Timothy?
3: They were both very angry, both very angry.
1: As a mother with the extra responsibility of not just caring for yourself, but also shepherding these two young boys through the loss of their father and his sickness, what was that like for you?
3: Honestly, they weren't home that much. Between band, Michael had to play in every football game. When he wasn't in band, they were volunteering for everything that ROTC had. And lucky for me, I didn't really have to worry about them. You know, they had each other. And then they had... um. You know, first sergeant. When he kind of looked out for them. So I always knew where they were. And I was, I guess I was just like in survival mode.
1: Yeah. What kind of questions do you remember Michael and Timothy asking you about what was happening when David was sick and when you eventually lost him?
3: Timothy's big question was why didn't God answer my prayers? That was Timothy's big question. Michael never said anything until Christmas. He died in October. And Christmas Day, Michael finally broke down. But he never asked any questions. He never said anything. He just cried and cried. That was it. He was a very quiet young man.
1: (laughs) So tell me about when Michael first told you that he was thinking about enlisting?
3: I had no idea until Michael's senior year. And then he dropped the bomb. He said he wanted to join the military. I did not want him to. And he said, if I didn't approve, that he would never forgive me for not letting him join. That was
1: it. When was that?
3: Right before he graduated.
1: Was he 18? Oh, yeah. So he didn't actually need your permission at that point? Nope. So what permission do you think he was asking you for then?
3: If I would be okay for him to leave.
1: So... Why didn't you want him to join?
3: Because you never know what's going to happen. And I was just worried that something bad was going to happen.
1: And by that time, did you have a sense of what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan?
3: I did, but at the same time, I had a little bit of hope because they were gonna bring the troops home after they called Osama bin Laden or whatever, they were gonna bring the troops home and so I had that little, you know, ray of hope that he wouldn't go over there, you know, that that it wouldn't actually be a war <laughs> that he would go into.
1: So tell me about when he left for boot camp. Tell me what you remember about that.
3: We all went down to the recruiter station. Actually
1: Oh, you have a picture.
3: Yep, him leaving. Wow. We signed the papers and we all went out to eat and we all hung out with him and Went back to the recruiter station, where the van was, and Paul had all these flags and everything. And then we gave him this big old send off. And you could tell he was happy.
1: In the photo, Michael's wearing a black golf shirt buttoned to the top. He and Timothy have their arms around Teresa. Whose eyes are hidden behind dark sunglasses. So you saw him get in the van and pull off,
3: mm-hmm. with a smile on his face.
1: And what were you thinking at the time?
3: Have you lost your mind? <laughs> no, um, I was just had to see him go.
1: We'll be back after the break. There's a pull-down staircase in the back hallway of Teresa's house that leads up to the attic. We follow her up through the narrow entrance into the dimly lit space, where she points out a few plastic tubs nestled among boxes and crates of random stuff.
3: If you wanna look at any of this, you can. This is everything I have for Michael. All the boxes, all the letters.
1: These tubs contain everything the Marine Corps returned to Teresa after Michael died.
3: Yeah, this is his uniform and more letters, more official paperwork.
1: You just keep them up here?
3: Yep. I don't want to look at them. That's his graduation photo.
1: From recruit training?
3: Yeah, and this is when we were in California. What they do is, this is the base, And then this goes right here. And they put Michael's shoes right here. Then they put a gun right here. And then they put the helmet on top. And that's his real helmet. Wow.
1: It's the base of Michael's battlefield cross from the memorial service at Camp Pendleton. Teresa tosses it back into the tub. Oh, That's your gold star flag? Yep. Teresa is what's known as a gold star mother a mom whose child died while serving in the military during wartime. Gold star families get a little white flag with a bright red border and a gold star in the center. Some people hang these up. Yep. You didn't want to do
0: that? Why
3: do I want to stare? Look at that all the time.
1: (laughs) Along with Michael's clothes and personal belongings, there are stacks of papers and certificates in hardbound folders. We take the tubs downstairs for a better look.
3: Go I'll go first, and you can hand it down to me. Yeah.
1: Back in the sitting area by the fireplace, we start sorting through the material. So this is, this is all. Oh yeah, that's my handwriting right there. Yep. I find the CD that I sent Teresa with Michael's interview and photos. Teresa is going through a stack of official remembrance certificates she received from the Marine Corps after Michael died. Sometimes she still gets similar certificates from veterans' organizations. What were you saying about they send you these things?
3: I send them. I got a whole box of them.
1: So this is from 1-5. Yep. The Forager. And this is a Navy and Marine Corps achievement medal. For heroic achievement, on 28 June, he bravely fought for seven hours, driving the enemy out of the platoon battle space. Have you read this before?
3: Yep. Maybe one day I'll be strong enough to do it.
1: So you said they send these things thinking they'll make you feel better, but.
3: Yeah, they don't. <laughs> don't replace the child.
1: so do you remember michael telling you that he was getting sent to afghanistan
3: i do he said that once he got there he would write to me and tell me where to send letters to
1: and what went through your mind at that time
3: a lot of praying just a lot of praying I asked the Lord to put a hedge of protection around Michael and bring him home safe and sound, mentally and healthy.
1: Did he talk to you about what they would be doing there or what the mission was or why they needed to go there or anything like that?
3: He told me that they were going to train the people lived in the village had to take care of themselves basically
1: and did he tell you anything about what was going on with the unit that was already there or where he would be going or nothing what did you know about what the US was doing in afghanistan at that time
3: all i knew was they were trying to bring the troops home. Apparently, according to the news, that everything had calmed down and they were going to start pulling all the men out.
1: So I, I would like to know what your communication was like with Michael while he was in Afghanistan and what he told you about what they were doing there.
3: We were constantly writing letters. I mean, letter after letter after letter. Everybody was writing letters at least three or four times a week and sending him care packages and all kinds of stuff. And he was writing back. And um, he never told us anything bad that was happening.
1: So you were getting handwritten letters from Michael? Yeah. What about phone calls?
3: Nope. Just letters.
1: So that recording that I made was the only time you heard his voice after he left? It was. Here's Michael, back in Sangin, talking about his plans for after the Marine Corps.
2: Since I've joined the Marine Corps, I've decided uh, I want to follow my mom's footsteps and uh, become a teacher because I really like what she does. Right now, I'm just trying to figure out what subject I want to (laughs) teach.
1: Any ideas?
2: Right now, I'm thinking uh, I definitely want to teach high school. might be an autism specialist like my mom or uh, teach science or history.
3: Cool.
1: Do you remember him talking about wanting to be a teacher someday?
3: That was a surprise to me. I was blown away. I had no idea. That boy must have kept a lot bottled up that he didn't talk about. But I had no idea. And that just, oh, just thrilled me to death.
1: Well, I'm really glad that we were able to have that conversation. And I remember him telling me that. I remember that very vividly, saying that he wanted to come home and he wanted to go to college and study history and become a teacher like his mom.
3: But he didn't come home. No. Ten days. That's all he had left. And we told him never volunteer. (laughs) No matter what you do, never volunteer. And what did he do? He volunteered.
1: Ask you about the day when you found out that Michael had been killed. And I just want you to reconstruct that day for me to the best of your ability.
3: Oh, it was like today is a beautiful day. I was at work. And I was in the classroom teaching. And Timothy's girlfriend, Amber, called and said that I needed to get home that there were three men at the house and they needed to talk to me. We've seen all the different movies, haven't we? Then we know exactly what happens when those three men show up. So I walked out of the school (laughs) and got in my car and drove straight home. And there they were, standing in the living room. Right here? Mm hmm. Bunny, right there. They were dressed to the T. All their dress blues had their little hats on. I went hysterical. Timothy picked up the coffee table, threw it across the room. It shattered everywhere. Went from crying to laughing hysterically. That poor man, I think I scared him to death. (laughs) I just couldn't believe it. Just. It was like the whole world was crumbling in. I was so mad. Obama promised to bring him home after he caught Osama bin Laden or whatever. Oh, I was a cussing like a sailor. And one of the guys asked me to stop cussing the president. I guess it's not nice to cuss the president. And then we just started calling all the family members.
1: Once things had settled down, two of the casualty officers left, and one stayed behind.
3: Uh, We had to sit at the dining room table, and he had this big book, and it said, What to Expect of the Coming Days. And next thing I know, he's going over all this military stuff. All forms and regulations and forms and regulations. And talking about Michael's stuff would be shipped here. And So much witching hour.
1: You were Michael's next of kin, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So you had to fill out the paperwork for... The retrieval of his remains and yep. the life insurance and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And they, made, they make you do that right then and there?
3: Yep. That's the military for you. Yeah. We had to get in touch with the funeral home. We had to get in touch with the memorial where Michael's buried. The bank. And I can show you the notebook. It's huge.
1: Yeah. Did they tell you anything about what happened?
3: Oh, he read it to me. The formal report. Yep. Apparently, he tripped on a IED. It was was covered up. Then he jumped over it, and the tip of his boot caught it.
1: And did they tell you anything else about that?
3: The helicopter came and picked him up, and they thought he was going to make it. But once they got him in the air, he didn't make it.
1: And what happened the rest of that day?
3: We're in the South. Everybody started bringing food. That's what they do. Um, I called school, told them I wouldn't be back. That's all we did all day was paperwork.
1: Earlier we talked about when David died Mm -hmm. and how you had to go into survival mode. How was losing Michael different? What was the aftermath of that like for you?
3: Oh, it was totally different because it was all logistics, you know. Made sure everything had to be perfect. Had to have your I's dotted, your T's crossed. We had to go to the courthouse. I wasn't by myself. Um, The liaison kept coming over and coming over. I think he spent like a week here.
1: So there was a lot of work to do.
3: Oh, gosh, it was insane.
1: What can you tell me about the memorial?
3: We had to go out and meet the airplane. And they brought the body home. And... Originally, I wanted an open casket, and the guy said, well, I don't think you do. I said, well, let's wait and see. So we had to wait till they do all that stuff they do to them, and they showed us, and it didn't look like Michael, but we decided not to have an open casket. It just didn't look like him, even when they did all that stuff.
1: So a lot of mothers and fathers are never able to see their children when they've been killed in war. Why not? Because there's not enough left
3: to see. Oh, that's true. I didn't to see. About that.
1: So Michael didn't look the same. But do you think you needed to see him? Do you think it was important for you to see him?
3: Yep. I need to see my baby.
1: The funeral took place at Trinity Baptist Church in Asheville on Friday, September 23, 2011. A few days after Michael's platoon fired a three-volley salute for him halfway around the world and sang it. He was buried with full military honors at Western Carolina State Veterans Cemetery in Black Mountain. So when did things quiet down? When did the food stop coming? And when did you start to feel like, you know, the event was over, I guess, and you just had to live with it
3: now? Um, it was about a week and a half. Everything kind of started slowing down.
1: And So what was that
3: like? Um... Like right now, just all by yourself. I was still out of work. I think I took two weeks off altogether. So I had to kind of start planning to go back to work. Facing the crowds, you know, knowing that you're going to have to do it all over again when he got back to work.
1: All the explanations.
3: Here we go again, yeah.
1: What kind of things did people ask you?
3: Oh, they don't ask you like, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do? Do you need anything? All that stuff.
1: And what did you say?
3: I'm fine. Was that true? Of course, I'm fine. <laughs> no matter what happens, I'm fine.
1: <laughs> Were you fine?
3: Um, Yeah. I mean, as fine as I could be. What can I do?
1: Has it changed at all over the years? It's been 10 years now. Has it changed at all?
3: Um, no. I actually started spring cleaning, as you can tell. And I started going through some stuff and I found some of his stuff. And I'll look at it for a little bit and cry for a little bit and hide it away. But I still won't go to his grave. It's as fresh as the day it was. And a lot of that's probably the same from WLOS.
1: Teresa's flipping through memento books from Michael's elementary school years now. They've got his report cards, notes on his field trips, and photos from his activities.
3: See, that's my baby. See how he's just so happy all the time. Oh yeah. That's him in a school play.
1: Was he a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle?
3: (laughs) Playing soccer. Oh wow. But he was just a happy child. That was a serious part of him.
1: Oh, this is him. This is his ROTC picture.
3: Yeah. Wow, so they give them.
1: There are also piles and piles of cards from total strangers, hand addressed to Teresa in meticulous script, many still in their unopened envelopes. Oh, wow, these are all the cards. Oh my gosh. These are just all the constellation cards from. Yep. Wow. Where do you think they get your name and number and stuff?
3: I have no idea. Those sweet old ladies, that's. You know. That's what they do. They sit around and write letters. You can tell they're old. Look at their handwriting.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> it is. Teresa's husband, Ron, has come in from the porch with Flash, the dog. He wears a pained expression on his face as he watches Teresa sift through the almost comically large stack of cards.
3: It's some little old lady that meets every yeah, Saturday. They well. <laughs> they have nothing to do. It hurts, Teresa. I've seen yeah. her look at the cards and cry, you know, and then I take them and I put them up. Yeah, I've got tons of them. I look at their names today. Oh, that's so sweet. They always say the same thing. What do they say? <laughs> Just letting you know that we're thinking about you at this time. Thank you for your son's sacrifice.
1: What do you think about that word, Sacrifice.
3: sacrifice. Who did he sacrifice himself for? A bunch of people that don't even appreciate him. When he was going out, the guy in front of him was a Taliban scout. They said that when he got to where the IED was, the Taliban scout stopped, went around it, because he knew where it was, And took off running and left them. He knew exactly where it was, and the guys started chasing him. And that's how they tripped on him. That man was supposed to be helping them, but he didn't. He knew where that was, and he still let that happen. So it was was, was, was senseless. Yeah. It was senseless. He was nice to them. Then look what happened.
1: How do you balance, you know, all of the praise of Michael's service that you get in these letters? People saying, you know, thank you. The more patriotic forms of memorial about, you know, that's so great. The like the phrase, the ultimate sacrifice, for example, is one that always sticks out in my head. How do you balance that? with your sense that, as you said, it was a senseless death. How do you hold those two things together?
3: I don't, I bury it away. I look at the letters I'm like, oh, that sweet little lady. I bet you they sit around the circle and drink tea and write letters. That's so sweet of her. And I put it away. I don't want to deal with it at all. There's no balance. I don't, want, I don't want to talk about it. It's in the attic. Maybe one day I will. Not right now.
1: Well, we are talking about it right I now.
3: know. And I wouldn't be, but if you're such a nice man. I even thought about canceling it several times, and Timothy was like, Mom, just do it. And I'm like, okay, fine, I will.
1: Well, I got the sense that maybe you were thinking about canceling it a couple times. I mm-hmm. picked up on that.
3: Mm-hmm. It's like stirring the pot. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day I will.
1: Maybe one day you'll
3: work. I'll go visit his grave. I'll read all those lovely pieces of paper in there. Maybe one day.
1: The Biden administration still hasn't announced the date for the final withdrawal from Afghanistan while Teresa and I are talking. So there's still about 2,500 troops deployed there. Do you think that your experience over the last 10 years would have been different or easier in any way if the war had ended? Like, let's say that all the troops had come home. Do you think it would have been easier for you in any way to know that at least it was over? At least nobody else's child was going to have to... Go there. No, no other parent was going to have to deal with that.
3: Oh, definitely. That would have been. That was saved a lot of heartbreak. A lot of heartbreak.
1: So, for you to know that there's other young people in harm's way, other families who are having to deal with what you had to deal with, that that's been difficult for you. It
3: has almost want to make a sign that says, do not enlist, do not enlist. Put it above them. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, do not enlist. You have a chance to die. Do not believe what they say. They are liars.
1: We'll be back after the break. All right, the box. Teresa let Tommy and me take a storage bin back to our hotel so we could look through it more carefully. Got a huge box here, filled with artifacts from Michael Dutcher's military service and things that his mother has received from the Marine Corps and from other people. I'm just gonna go through this stuff And this is Michael Dutcher's posthumous Purple Heart Award. Signed by somebody who, sitting in an office somewhere far from Afghanistan, almost certainly never met Michael Dutcher and probably doesn't remember him. This is a condolence letter from the Department of the Navy, which the Marine Corps is a part of, and it says, Dear Mrs. Dutcher, please accept my sincere condolences on the death of your son, the late Corporal Michael Joseph Dutcher, U.S. Marine Corps. I realize it is difficult at a time like this to complete forms and administrative details, but it is necessary and should be done as soon as possible.
2: That's interesting. One line, basically, of condolences and then right down to business.
1: Yeah, I mean, what do you expect, you know? You can't grieve and mourn for every single person beyond a very pro forma level, because if you did, it would be impossible to fight wars. That's for sure. There's more official correspondence geared toward tying up the loose ends of Dutcher's short life. So here's something from the state of North Carolina about... Michael Dutcher's estate it's the money in his checking account and his, the value of his jeep, so yeah, his total personal property was worth seventeen thousand seven hundred and eighty one dollars and twenty nine cents. He had about almost ten grand in his Navy federal credit union checking account, and he must have had most twenty one hundred dollars in debt that got subtracted. That's not a lot of money for somebody who's, there's putting his life on the line. No. They don't make a whole lot of money. I mean, that's the thing. When I enlisted, a private first class in the army or marine corps made like fourteen thousand dollars a year. Holy shit. So when you go overseas, you get combat pay and hostile fire pay. But for the really junior guys, no, they don't make. I mean, they don't make minimum wage. Not even close. But that's not the job. You don't do it for money. I mean, that's the idea anyway. There are lots of Michael's personal photographs in the box that are still in the envelopes from the developer. A vacation to Disney World. A cruise with Teresa and Tim somewhere tropical. Pictures from the day Michael graduated from boot camp and rode home from Paris Island to Asheville with his head slumped on his friend's shoulder in the back seat, both of them out cold. Here's that picture of him on his motorcycle. It's a Suzuki. So this is the bike that he wanted to ride back across the United States and he is beaming. Just beaming. Mixed in with some of these pictures of Michael graduating from boot camp in his new uniform with his white hat standing there looking thin and fit. There are pictures of the casket arriving in Asheville and Marines unloading the casket from a small airplane, small jet with a flag draped over it. They had quite a few Marines on hand to unload the casket. Buried underneath all the photos and awards, letters from boot camp and grade school memory books, I find an envelope with an unmistakable seal. This manila envelope has a very important from address in the top left corner. It says the White House, Washington DC, 20502. There's two pieces of cardboard inside and in the center of them there is a letter from the president sent on October 20th, 2011, with his seal emblazoned in the top center. Dear Teresa, I am deeply saddened to learn of the loss of your son, Corporal Michael J. Dutcher, USMC. Our nation will not forget his sacrifice, and we can never repay our debt to your family. A simple letter cannot ease the pain of losing a child, but I hope you take solace in knowing that his brave service exceeded all measures of selflessness and devotion to this country. We honor him not only as a guardian of our liberty, but also as the true embodiment of America's spirit of service to a cause greater than ourselves. Michelle and I offer our heartfelt sympathy and pray that God's grace gives you comfort as you grieve. In life, your son was a shining example of all that is best in our land. In rest, may he find the peace we all seek. Sincerely, Barack Obama. Part of me really does believe that people like Michael Dutcher are a true embodiment of America's spirit of service to a cause greater than ourselves. I just think that that spirit of service to a cause greater than himself was wasted. So it said 5 Waynesville Avenue.
2: Is this it? There's the Jeep Wrangler. Do
1: you think that's it? yeah, I bet that is it. This is it, yeah. That's definitely his Jeep then. The next morning, we head over to visit Michael Dutcher's twin brother, Timothy, who goes by Tim to everyone but his mom. Tim lives right across the street from Asheville's legendary French Broad River, which is swollen and muddy now from the spring rains. Howdy. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing? Good. I'm Elliot. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Tim's once uncanny resemblance to Michael is harder to gauge now than in the high school photos on Teresa's mantle. Tim's got earrings and a big beard and about five times more hair than Michael had in Sangin. His voice is Michael's, though, and he's got the same laid-back energy. But things are not so laid-back at the house Tim shares with his girlfriend and his dog, because they're actually packing up to move to Colorado, and people are swinging by to say goodbye. Looks like you have some friends. Yes, yes. Uh, well, I used to work with that guy who just lives up the street. Inside. We were planning to hang out here and talk, but that's not looking like our best option anymore. So we load up and head to the hotel. And I'm happy to drive, so... Hey, do you want to just hop in with us? Sure. Alright, let me just do it. it. I'll hop in the back here. Hey, is that Michael's yeah, that is Jeep?
2: It's the same Jeep. I drive it
1: every day. Wow.
2: I love that little Jeep.
1: Yeah? It is. We make our way back up the steep and winding road to the Crosstown Highway. A lot of the Marines that Michael served with said that when they saw you for the first time, it was a total shock. Like, oh, it really freaked them out. Almost had a heart attack. I
2: walked into the barracks and I think I was on the second deck and I think it was Mendoza came out and he had nothing but a towel on and his stocky ass just bum-rushed me and picked me up. Started crying. Just got drunk that night and was just like, how the fuck could you scare us like that? And thought it was Mike. And it took him a while to get used to it because, I mean, I had a beard and Mustache and everything, but they just saw right through it and just saw Mike and uh, talking to me like they'd known me for years. And
1: that's funny. Here we are, the illustrious Holiday Inn Express. armchair over here and i'll sit in this chair okay tim gets as comfortable as he can in the desk chair then he tells me about growing up with michael
2: we were inseparable like one would go away one would cry so we we were always together 100 percent of the time when we were very very young got up until we were about 10 years old shared a bed didn't want to be away from each other
1: yeah. Your mom said that at one point you even had bunk beds and she would put you to bed in your separate bunk beds, but we'd... she'd go in the morning and you guys would be curled up together.
2: Yeah. I mean, you, from the womb, you're cuddling your best friend in the world. And that's what he was to me.
1: Wow.
2: He was the first person I ever knew the first person I ever like, well, got punched by.
1: <laughs> so I know twins have some kind of ESP, like when they're not there, you can kind of like feel their presence somewhere else. Did you ever experience anything like that?
2: There were definitely moments where we obviously finished each other's sentences, knew what we were thinking. We'd be going somewhere and then we'd see the other person there because we had the same thought of the same idea. The one thing I'll always remember though is the morning that Mike died... I woke up and I knew it. had a horrible nosebleed, headache, fell off, knew something was wrong. Got to work. Girlfriend texted me and she was like, there's some people here need to come home. My mom called, there's some people here you need to come home. Hung up the phone, looked at my boss, said my brother's dead. I'm going home. Didn't even have to tell me. He knew it immediately. Came home and uh, it was a captain and a first sergeant. Sitting him, just standing in my living room. Didn't even have to say anything. He looked at me and apologized. Said I'm sorry. Just, just picked up the table. Just threw it. Uncontrollable anger and rage. Just broke down immediately, went in a corner and just stayed there for like five hours crying. Inconsolable. Losing your best friend in the whole world. I've known people. Who have lost siblings and have lost friends, and nothing will ever, ever compare to losing your other half. His body came home and it was almost unrecognizable. I could have sworn it wasn't him. I could have sworn it. But you knew it. You knew it was him. For years five years after it I was I was a wreck. Absolute wreck. Dealt with horrible depression. Just drinking too much, partying too much. I was a mess. My mother was a mess. Losing your dad is it was rough, but like he had known it was coming. For seven years we knew it was coming, but this he's buried in Black Mountain, Sawanno at the VA cemetery, and every year I would go out there and sit down with him and just try to f- see if I could still feel him and then one day, just sitting there having lunch, it felt like I woke up from a long. Endless nightmare. Something just said, it's okay. I don't know what it was. I know it was something new.
1: So you still drive Michael's Jeep. And I wonder how often you... Think of Michael as you're trying to move your way through the world. How often do you look to him and remember him and 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 think of his example and the way he was as you're trying to just deal with everything that life throws at you?
2: I think about him every day. I mean he was my twin. I can't not think about him in the long term, as I mentioned, coming out of depression and five years of just being in a fugue. I try to open myself up to everybody. I try not to be a recluse. I try to be more outgoing. I try to take chances more because life is short. We're not here forever. Make it worthwhile, just like he did.
1: Your mom was very kind to us yesterday and very open and very direct and honest with us. She also seemed, from the f- moment we sat down, it was so clear that the pain was just under the surface. When I was telling her what I wanted to talk about, there were already tears welling in her eyes then. And I know that she was dreading this. And she told me that she thought about canceling it several times and that you told her that she should do it. and She did
2: not want to. She told me that she just wanted it to be over. And then I told her that it's never over. We're going to talk about these things. And honestly, it's good for her to talk about these things because she doesn't talk about Mike very much. She doesn't like remembering and we need to remember.
1: So what has it been like for you to see your mom go through this? Over the last 10 years now.
2: First five years, just like me, was processing, actually coming to terms with the fact that it happened. Even though there was a memorial service, even though we saw a body. Just accepting it was the hardest part. For a while, we kind of kept out of each other's way. Because it was hard to think about, it was hard to be around each other. But then I started talking about it. Friends, family, my partners just it helped me come to terms with it. it helped me process and unfortunately for her, shortly after losing Mike, she lost her boyfriend. And she was dealt another painful blow. Joe was one of my dad's best friends. And when my dad passed, he was always there for her. He was always there for us. And they started dating. And then he got cancer and he died right after Mike died. And sent her into a deeper round of depression. And she felt like she just couldn't catch a break. Just... One thing after another, she, at one point she looked at me and she was like, did I do something wrong? Can I just not be happy? She's gone through more pain and anguish in her life than I could ever imagine. She lost her husband. She lost her son. She lost the second love of her life. It's been the worst on her. And for the longest time, I was surprised that she held on as well as she did. I don't know if it was a front for me, but I think it's good for her to actually have these conversations. And I mean, it is for me, and I just hope that I hope that she gets some weight lifted off of her chest and some sense of peace from just
1: talking. Throughout all these years of grief, Teresa has always had Tim nearby. But now he's preparing to start a new life halfway across the country in Colorado. What's it going to be like for you to be away from her? This will be the first time that you've been away for a really, really long time.
2: We still haven't sat down and had that conversation. I don't know how she's going to deal with it. Personally, I'm looking forward to it. It's taken me a long time to come to terms and actually take a chance at living my own life again. I'm excited to get out there and I put my life on hold for a long time dealing with my brother's loss and I hope that she can at least come to terms like I have. That's been a long time. She got remarried and she's been happy there, but there are some days in the holidays pictures get turned. Don't want to think about certain things. Don't want to be reminded of, The hard times. She's come a long way, but I don't think she'll ever be the same. I just want her to find happiness and at least some sort of solace,
1: some sort of just acceptance. You think she still hasn't accepted that that he's dead or or that why he died or what do you think it is that she hasn't? quite accepted we've
2: all accepted that he's gone at this point it's just i think she's still in a great deal of pain and she doesn't want to think about my brother or talk about him she hasn't come to terms emotionally i think with it
1: Have you talked to her? Have you told her that?
2: We haven't been that close in a while. It's been hard for both of us. And when I was going through those five years of just severe depression, I uh, I was very estranged. I didn't want to talk about those things. I didn't want to think about those things and never wanted to bring anything up. And for a long time, we we went through the motions. We just, we lived our everyday life. We didn't communicate openly. We weren't mother and son, heart to heart. We were statues trying to keep each other from crumbling. It's easier to talk about my brother with someone like you, who's a friend, who's known my brother in a different light. It's very much so different Talking to my mother who, just like me, losing a best friend, losing something that came from you. I don't think she'll ever be able to get over it. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to be as close as we were. And actually, it wasn't until now that I realized that we had fallen that far apart. Because we had gone through the motions for so long. It's just standard now. I mean, hell, I should have done this with my mother five years ago, sit down and talked with her 10 years ago, the day after. It just feels like there's never a right time to talk about these things.
1: I tell Tim, this isn't easy for me to talk about either. In fact, these last few months have been some of the hardest of my life. Asking the squad and Teresa and Tim to relive their nightmares has also meant facing my own dark memories and emotions head-on. Dutcher's voice is one in a chorus of the dead who are always with me. Friends from my own time in the military who died in Iraq and Afghanistan, Journalists I knew who were killed doing the work that I got away with. A little girl lying in the Helmand dirt with all four of her limbs blown off, who took her last breaths under the lights of a Humvee while I stood watching. The soldier I met on a long embed in Kandahar who wrote to me off and on for years, who took his own life on Veterans Day in 2019. There are more, and lately, it's like all of them are shouting inside of my head at the same time, telling me something urgent and desperate that I can't quite make out. And some days, what I want more than anything is quiet, to never ask anyone to relive any of this again. Your mom yesterday was talking about how Receiving all those cards, she never gets a moment of peace. She can never not be reminded of not Michael's life, but of his death. And I think to myself sometimes, am I just doing the same thing? Am I doing like a very elaborate form of that very same thing? Am I forcing all of you to, to be reminded of these things that would be better left alone, et cetera?
2: In my opinion, what you're doing is not senseless. These are people that they see a name of a fallen soldier. and I'm just going to go send a card and tell them that I'm sorry, but you, you were there. You have your own chapter in his story. So if somebody was going to do a story or just have the right to dredge these memories up, you're one of those people. You have a right to do this. I don't like the idea of what do you want people to learn from his death? He died, but he also lived. And that's the story that should be told. His life still affects us. Just like the butterfly effect, the ripples still remain. If you have hate, but you hear Mike's story about how much he cared. And you hate less. That makes the story, just for one person, worth a damn.
1: I share some of the things the guys told us about Michael with Tim. How the guys thought he was so smart, they nicknamed him AskDutcher.com.
2: His knowledge was unreal. Never met a Marine with knowledge like him.
1: How they were inspired by his generosity and kindness. He was a sweet human being, man. Like one of the nicest dudes in that entire platoon. Maybe the nicest dude in that entire platoon. He was a good guy, man. Like he, like almost, he was like so, so good that he didn't belong there.
2: He had no idea how to be mean. There's just, just not a mean bone in his body. He saw the good in everything.
1: How his insistence on seeing people as people. Help John Bollinger find his humanity again.
2: When all of us were looking at animals, we're looking at enemies, we're looking at targets, we're looking at threats, he was seeing people. And him saying that to me, him telling me that just by using manners, you have your humanity.
1: If that's all you got, brother, that's all you got. If please and thank you is the best you can muster
2: for your fellow man, then please and thank you is what you get. I can't even put into words how important that was and how it instilled in me the very beginning seeds of empathy. I'm glad he had that influence. Because I'm sure some bad things happened, but I think that would make him rest easier, knowing that even after him being gone, he's still helping his friends and his family in that way. I mean, when those guys came up for my brother's funeral and actually came by the house, there was rage in their eyes and and their hearts, and I'm glad to hear that they've found some semblance of peace.
1: Yeah. So also, I don't know if you know this, maybe you do, but Bo named his son after your brother. He named him Benjamin Michael Bollinger.
2: I did not know that.
1: And Brian Shearer also named his son after your brother. He named him Bo Dutcher Shearer.
2: It's very actually heartwarming to hear that he's being honored in that way. I hope that they grow up to be just as, just as amazing as my brother did.
1: We wrap up and head back over to Teresa's house with Tim so I can take portraits of both of them. I'm not so nervous this time when I walk through the chain-link gate and up the steps. The talking is the hardest part, and it's mostly over. So get nice and close like you like each other, come a little bit this way. No, we go you, outside you for the seat. portraits, and for the briefest moment, I catch a glimpse of what Teresa hand. must have been like when the boys were little. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, crazy eyes here. She's cracking jokes and hamming right, it up with really Tim, good. pretending to pose for a mugshot right, and then so sticking her tongue one, out and going cross-eyed. Two. But when it's time for the real picture, the smile fades and the resignation that's worn creases at the edges of Teresa's mouth returns. She stares into the lens with tears at the corners of her bright eyes. I release the shutter. One, two, three. And for a fraction of a second, light splashes onto a square of black and white film, like it did a decade ago in a dusty mudbrick room in Sangin when Michael Dutcher was a 22 year old Marine with his whole life ahead of him. Dreaming of becoming a teacher, like his mother. Dreaming of coming home. The next morning, Tommy and I head east from Asheville. As we get closer to Black Mountain, the chain store islands and fixtures of suburban sprawl start to drop off and we pass through pockets of rural scenery. Old barns and pastures, carved out of what was once an endless sea of trees. We turn off the main road and skirt an old industrial complex, and then, out of nowhere, oh wow, wow! There's look the this. cemetery. Yeah, wow! Look at all those monuments. Western Carolina State Veterans Cemetery, Black Mountain, North Carolina. Man, it sure is beautiful, though. Look at this and it's this rolling gorgeous. hill. As we're getting out of the car, Tommy's phone buzzes. Look at this, news break. President Biden is expected to announce the full withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan by September 11th. Interesting choice of date. I'd like to dwell on the coincidence of finding out at this exact point in the journey that the Afghanistan war will finally end. But I've only got one thing on my mind right now. There are hundreds of identical granite headstones and neat ranks stretching up a broad grassy slope. I walk along the lowest road near the road, scanning the names. And to my surprise, the one I'm looking for almost jumps out at me. So here it is, Michael Joseph Dutcher, Corporal, US Marine Corps, Afghanistan, November 21st, 1988. To September 15th, 2011, loving son and brother. And there's a fresh bouquet of roses in front of it with an American flag. And here somebody left a painted shell. I think I'll just take a minute. I kneel down and close my eyes, running my hand over the cold stone, feeling the soft grain of the granite and the letters etched on its surface. It's a poor replacement for the beautiful young man whose life intersected with mine for a few memorable moments just weeks before he died. I didn't bring any flowers or anything to leave. Didn't bring a rock or anything to leave on the headstone, um, didn't bring any beers, didn't bring any whiskey, didn't bring anything like that. But I thought, you know, I'm a writer and I like to write letters. So I thought I would write a letter and leave it here. So this is what it says 13 April, 2021 Dear Michael, it's been a while. I came a very long way to see you and I'm grateful to be here at last. Your final resting place is beautiful. It's also a perfectly beautiful day. Sunny, warm, a gentle spring breeze. The birds are singing and the dandelions and clover are blooming. (laughs) There's a little creek that runs just across the gravel road from your grave. Someone left you a painted shell and a bouquet of flowers with a little flag. I'm here to say hello again and also to say farewell. The finality of death is something I understand all too well, but I take some comfort in the idea that you're never truly gone until there's no one left who remembers you. And while I'm sure that's not much consolation to Teresa, I am grateful to be one of the people who remembers Michael Dutcher, one of the people who learned from his kindness in the most difficult of circumstances. And I'm grateful that I've been given this opportunity to keep his memory alive, to add to the epitaph on his headstone here in Black Mountain, which reads simply, Loving Son and Brother. I'm just going to tear this out and leave it here. stuff it into this little shell and it will be protected for a little while from the rain. It was almost a year ago that I knelt by Dutcher's grave on that beautiful spring day in Black Mountain. And a lot has happened since then. President Biden followed through on his promise to end America's longest war. And on August 15, 2021, while the last troops were still packing their bags, the Taliban stormed into Kabul. Many of them were riding on American trucks, wearing American body armor, and carrying American weapons. All of it captured from the Afghan troops who'd once been our allies, but who were now defeated and fleeing for their lives, along with hundreds of thousands of desperate civilians. For a couple of weeks, pundits and politicians excoriated Biden over the collapse of Afghanistan. Almost no one wanted to see the chaos in Kabul for what it was, the final horrifying scene of a two-decade war that was lost long before we were ready to admit it. A few weeks later, when America paused to commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11, Afghanistan was quickly changing from a political football to a footnote. And some of the same politicians who blamed Biden for abandoning America's allies were already maneuvering to keep Afghan refugees out of the United States. The rallying cry after 9-11 was never forget. But what is it that we're supposed to remember? I'll always remember that awful September day, but I'll spend the rest of my life trying to make sense of everything that came after. I'll remember Dutcher and all the others like him, the ones I knew and the ones I didn't. I'll remember the guys from Third Squad and all the veterans like them who are learning to live with broken brains, broken bodies, and broken hearts. I'll remember Teresa and Tim, and all the families left to sort through the wreckage while the rest of the country moves on. I'll think about the nightmares we left behind in Afghanistan, Iraq, and all the other battlefields of the forever wars. And I'll continue asking, what was it all for? Even though I know there will never be a satisfying answer to that question. Because I still hold out hope that there might just be some kind of redemption for the people who served and for the country that sent them. If we insist on learning something from all of this, so that it isn't meaningless, so that maybe another decade from now, it will be true when we say, they didn't die for nothing. Third Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an heirloom media production distributed by iHeart Media. Funding support for Third Squad comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. If you're interested in supporting our work with a financial contribution, please visit the donate page at ThirdSquad.com, where you'll also find photographs from Sangin and from our road trip. Original music for Third Squad by Mondo Boys. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kim. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Marianne Andre, Ted Genoways, Benjamin Bush, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, and Lena Ferguson. If you got a minute, please leave us a rating in your preferred podcast app. It'll help other people find the show. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Elliot Woods.